It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. There's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter about what's wrong with baseball because the pitchers have become so dominant that it's become a low-scoring affair, many more strikeouts, home runs are down, and all of that, and just less interesting to watch. Uh, as George Will, you know, the uh, longtime political columnist who was also a baseball fanatic, had a column the other day saying baseball needs to take some, you know, what I would consider fairly radical steps, such as even considering moving the pitcher's mound back in order to, you know, have a greater balance between offense and defense. And one of the points I remember that George Will made was that if you compare the height of the pitchers, uh, let's say 1960s, I remember he mentioned Whitey Ford of the New York Yankees. Um, I don't know, it was like 5'10 or something, and now it's well over six feet. So he says they're actually delivering the ball closer to home plate than in the era when pitchers were of more average size. And so therefore, that's a reason to justify making changes. Anyway, but there's some really bad changes that Major League Baseball has gone for. And yesterday, the commissioner, Rob Manfred, told reporters that probably those were going to be called out. Uh, One of those things is having a doubleheader in which the second game is only seven innings. I mean, talk about, you know, baseball as a sport is so immersed in statistics and comparing one era to another and who has the most RBIs and the pitching ERA and all of that. If you have seven inning double headers, you kind of have blown that up. So Manfred says uh, that was a COVID-related change. I don't think seven inning double headers are going to be part of our future. He also said this whole thing where it's a tie game, you go into extra innings, they don't want to have these endless games where it stretches on for four or five hours. Um, the You begin the extra inning with a runner on second. That's the rule now. He said that was also a coronavirus-related decision rather than a long-term change. So I think those two, uh, let me just choose my words carefully here, stupid rule changes are going to be uh, tossed out. Meanwhile, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, uh, said something yesterday on Fox News that I thought was, again, let me uh, be diplomatic here, choose my words carefully, spectacularly dumb. Uh, Look, I get it. Hispanic mayor of Miami, huge Cuban population. He wants to pander the Cuban population. So in light of the street protests in Cuba, which we should all uh, cheer, uh, you know, a a nascent pro-democracy movement aimed at the uh, awful authoritarian regime in Havana, uh, which President Biden has obviously spoken out on behalf of the protesters. Martha McCallum asked the mayor, are you suggesting airstrikes in Cuba? And Suarez said, what I'm suggesting is that option is one that has to be explored. It cannot simply be discarded as an option that is not on the table. And there's a variety of ways the military can do it. So Mayor Suarez thinks it'd be perhaps a really viable, maybe even a really cool idea for the U.S. to bomb Cuba in order to overthrow the government. Um, First of all, you know, the international condemnation would be almost unbelievable. Second of all, has he read any history here? Does he know that Cuba is basically kind of a client of the Russian state and that this would lead to instant international tensions? And how morally would you justify it? I mean, I get it. It's a dictatorship. We support democracy, but we don't have the right to just go into any foreign country, uh, although the U.S. has been accused of this, you know, over decades and decide that we want regime change, you know, rock comes to mind, and begin a military campaign. I, it, it is such an, it is so out there 
that I thought I would just spend a minute or two uh, weighing in on it. Meanwhile, and I know you're dying to hear about the Britney Spears, the ACLU is the latest actor to get involved in the Britney Spears case as she tries to get rid of this 13-year-long conservatorship uh, headed by her father. You know, you followed this. She said it was abusive. I guess her lawyer quit or is in the process of quitting. Uh, her manager is in the process of quitting. All these a mess. Um, so the American Civil Liberties Union filed an amicus brief in the case uh, uh, along with 25 civil and disability organizations in support of Brittany saying she wants to be able to choose her own lawyer. Remember, she stuck with this court-appointed lawyer who didn't seem to do what she wants, which is she wants out of this thing. So that guy, whose name is Samuel Ingham III and has made nearly $3 million off this case, um, he did resign last week. So now the ACLU brief says that she should be given access to assistance and tools to make a selection for a lawyer who would at least represent her interests. That doesn't mean she wins the case. The judge seems to turn down every motion that Brittany makes. But if you think about it in 2021, I mean, uh, at a time where we're talking about the legacy of slavery and so forth, I mean, she's stuck with some lawyer going back. You know, this is a woman who obviously makes a lot of money. Uh, she had mental problems in the past, but she can't be completely dysfunctional and she wouldn't have a career. Uh, so it's, this is filed by the ACLU's Disability Rights Project. Britney Spears has said she wants to pick her own lawyer and the court should respect that wish, said an attorney uh, with the ACLU. Talks about the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Um, we'll see how that goes. All right. Getting into some of the bigger news here. Uh, President Biden gave a speech yesterday about voting rights. And I have to say, I have a column today um, keying off of a New York Times piece that says, Joe Biden is not a great orator. I don't think that's breaking news, but it was interesting the way it was put in the Times. I talked about this on the podcast yesterday, his mumbles, his stumbles, his real-time corrections, how he's not really an inspiring speaker. And what I said in the column today, you can go look it up, is that you don't have to be a great speaker to be a successful president, and there are successful presidents who aren't great speakers, but it doesn't hurt in the digital age. And, you know, Biden often just, you know, kind of trips over his own words and then has to kind of get out of it. And, and nobody, you know, people didn't vote for him because he was a speaker in, in the uh, hallowed tradition of Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama. Um, he's a plain spoken guy from Scranton. And, you know, he's just not that great at it. And the main reason I think it hurts him is because by by giving moving speeches, if you can move public opinion just a little bit, you can create pressure on Congress. And in Biden's case, he's got the 50-50 Senate. He's got the House with a very slim Democratic lead. And his biggest problem is gridlocking Congress on just about everything. And so uh, he doesn't quite have that tool. Having said all that, yesterday, Joe Biden gave what I thought was probably the best speech of his presidency in terms of it being passionate, and obviously it was well-crafted by his speechwriters. He delivered it pretty well, and it was about voting rights. He went to Philadelphia, you know, birthplace of democracy, and he took on Donald Trump and said, you know, uh, Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the 2020 election are the big lie and the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. Now, there's a lot of overblown rhetoric in it, but that's what speeches are. And I'm not necessarily agreeing with everything that Biden said. I'm just talking about, you know, from the theater criticism point of view, it was a pretty powerful speech. 
Here's some of what he said. Help prevent this concerted effort to undermine our election and the sacred right to vote. Have you no shame? He talked about Republicans. But then in the same speech, Biden seemed to acknowledge that he's not going to get his way. He's not going to get this big for the people uh, voting rights act that does a lot more than just voting rights. There's a lot of things in there that, you know, are really partisan. Republicans are never going to go for. And he seemed to acknowledge that this is going to be fought out. It is being fought out at the state level. More on that in just a moment. We're going to face another test, says Biden, in 2022, a new wave of unprecedented voter suppression and raw and sustained election subversion. We have to prepare now. Uh, he talked about conspiracy theories, um, undermining or exposing, I should say, a darker and more sinister underbelly of American politics. Um, he didn't mention Trump by name, but he said that they were the bullies and merchants of fear um, pose this grave threat to democracy. No other election has been under such scrutiny, such high standards. The big lie is just that, a big lie. But here's the reason, and this is kind of the microcosm of why Biden's presidency seems stalled now. In almost every way, you go through the list of all the things he wants to do, and we'll get to the, the big spending in a moment. You know, police reform, gun control, immigration, um, the vaccination program, uh, where I, I look at the cases that are starting to um, surge, really, not to anywhere near the highest levels of the pandemic, and I see the vaccination rates going down. It had been about a million shots a day. As recently as maybe two, three weeks ago. Now it's like 300,000, sometimes 400,000 a day. And, you know, Biden's doing what he can. And there's just, you know, it's getting harder and harder to convince this hardcore of people uh, that is keeping the national vaccination rate, at least for one shot, stuck at around 67%. And that's just for people over the age of 18. In any event, here's the problem. Biden can't deliver. As, as good as his speech was, Biden can't make anything happen on voting rights. He can't take the next step. And the reason he can't take the next step, even though Democrats are clamoring for him to get rid of the filibuster and just push this through with 50 votes in the Senate and not needing 60, is that he doesn't even have enough Democratic votes to do this. Joe Manchin has made clear, Kristen Sinema has made clear, that they're not going to um, get rid of the filibuster or even, I believe, modify it to the point where we're saying, you know, we'll just make an exception for this one bill, but the filibuster, the rest of it, will remain intact. And if you don't do that, you have what happened last month, which is Chuck Schumer tried to bring up the voting rights bill, never even got to any kind of preliminary test vote because the Republicans mounted a filibuster. By the way, it's not a filibuster like in, you know, Jimmy Stewart goes to Washington where people stand on their feet for hours and hours and hours. They just say, okay, we're going to do it. And, you know, there's an attempt to invoke cloture. And everybody knows they don't have 60 votes. I don't even think they have 50 votes. So why I, I, I think to some extent Biden is giving this speech, one, because he does believe in this deeply. Um, and secondly, because he wants to show, particularly liberals and Democrats, that this is not just some back burner item that he viscerally believes in changing the voting laws or at least preventing the Republicans in the states from uh, slapping on greater restrictions on the right to vote. Um, and so, but you have to have a strategy. And he can go around and give the same speech and try to build public opinion, but is that going to move the necessary votes, particularly in the Senate? Uh, the House has already passed this. Is it going to vote? Is it going to? Is it going to 
unlock the gridlock in the Senate? And the answer is, I don't think so. And I don't think Joe Biden and his White House think it's going to work. I think they're trying to set a standard. They're trying to win a rhetorical argument and all of that. Speaking of that, you know, yesterday, you know what's going on in Texas where the Texas Republicans, backed by Governor Greg Abbott, are on the verge of passing what liberals view as a very restrictive voting law. And a bunch, uh, or the vast majority of Texas Democratic lawmakers um, got on planes and fled Austin, came to D.C. to try to deny the Republicans a quorum, which is, you know, a delaying tack and so forth. And yesterday I read a New York Times headline saying, wow, they seem to be cheering for this because imagine if the situation was reversed. Imagine if there was a state, a liberal state, let's say it was New York, let's say it was California, and a bunch of Republican lawmakers who didn't have the votes to stop something the Democrats wanted to do for greater voting rights fled. They just left the state. Could you imagine how critical the coverage would be? Well, today the Washington Post outdid the New York Times. Here's the headline. Inside the secret plan for the Texas Democratic exodus, a phone tree, a scramble to pack, and a politically perilous trip. I mean, it makes it sound like they're, you know... uh, a bunch of um, operatives on Mission Impossible. You know that old show which would begin, da-da-da, da-da-da, and, you know, they, they, you'd have to do something that was nearly impossible. And the story goes on. They activated the plan with a phone tree late Sunday. Pack your bags and make sure they weigh no more than 45 pounds. Be ready to leave Austin at noon tomorrow. We'll tell you where we're going. Democrats in the Texas House have been preparing for this moment for days. Um... They were ready to do the same this time around, stage a walkout, to block what they described as a full-on assault on democracy, meant to make it harder for people who tend to vote Democratic to cast their ballots. It was just a question of when. Now, this is a news story, folks. Doesn't it sound like these Texas Democrats are being glorified, that they're on the side of truth, justice, and the American way, that this whole thing is being um, portrayed as this sort of um, incredible, brave act to uphold democracy. I mean, again, you know, if columnists, commentators want to say they're doing the right thing, that's great. I don't, you know, I don't, I guess the Texas Republicans have now voted to have them arrested when they go back on what grounds? That's an interesting, I mean, boy, that'll become a huge national story. If that were to happen, I'm kind of skeptical that will actually happen. But does the media have to so openly say, wow, this is incredible. Look what they're doing. They called each other and they got on planes and they said, don't bring an overstuffed bag because then you have to go to the baggage claim. Uh, and we won't tell you where we're going. It's going to be super secret. It's like a CIA mission. It's a bunch of politicians trying to thwart the will of the majority in the legislature by scrambling out of town. That's what it is. If you agree with what they're doing, great. If you disagree with what they're doing, fine. But don't glorify it like that. And again, if the situation was reversed, there's no way anything like the tone of this coverage would be taking place. All right. I mentioned the big spending. So they're still going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on infrastructure. I feel like I've been talking about this for months and months and months. I'm tired of talking about infrastructure. You're probably tired of hearing about it. But so now what the Democrats are doing, and they just announced this last night, Uh, You know, they've got the bipartisan bill, which is uh, just under a trillion, and we'll see whether that ultimately flies or not. Again, I remain very skeptical. Then they've got the other bill, the reconciliation bill, the party line vote bill, the bill that's going to be pushed through with only Democratic votes. Uh, 
And now they've reached agreement on what's in that bill. It's going to cost three and a half trillion dollars. Well, it's a blueprint. Um, this would include money uh, for climate change, expanding Medicare, whole bunch of Democratic priorities. So if you add that to the $2 trillion COVID relief bill, that would bring, assuming this passed in anything resembling this form, the total amount of new spending. This is not the regular federal budget. This is not, hey, we want to give more money to this, more money to that. You know, the usual appropriations process that goes on every year here in D.C. This is new money, and it would bring the total to $5.5 trillion in new money instead of the six that Biden wanted to spend. And yet to get this done, because of the 50-50 Senate that I was just talking about, the Democrats will have to hold on to every single member. Um, it's not clear if all 50 members, including Manchin, including Sinema, will go, will go for this. And part of the reason it's not clear is uh, how are they going to pay for it? So in the past, you know, President Biden said this in the campaign. He's been very upfront. Raise taxes on those making more than $400,000 and raise the corporate tax rate. But not only are Republicans against that, a couple of these moderate Democratic senators are not wild about big tax increases either. So uh, one of the Democratic senators, Mark Warner, said the plan would be fully paid for, but Democrats did not offer specifics. So it's not really an agreement. It's a blueprint. It's a... You know, agreement in principle, blah, blah, blah. Uh, look, ultimately, I think the Democrats will pass something on a party line vote. I have no idea at this point whether the bipartisan bill will fall apart at the last minute. Uh, I don't think they're going to get three and a half trillion dollars. I mean, you know, well, the worries that economists, even liberal economists like Larry Summers have about inflation would sort of be on steroids if this were to happen. In any event, um, that's where things stand. You know, the, the details of getting legislation through Congress are mind-numbing. It's hot as hell here in Washington, and it's just making for uh, what I call the dog days uh, of summer. And when I say hot as hell, about 95 degrees. By East Coast standards, that's pretty hot. It's not like the 116, 114, that the record temperatures in Seattle and Portland, but it's pretty uncomfortable. Uh, I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, getting into the whole vaccine situation, um, that um, one of the personalities on Newsmax, Rob Schmidt, who's not a doctor, by the way, um, said, and I just found this, of all the things that have been said for people who are arguing against vaccines, I just found this jaw-dropping. And I don't use that phrase lightly. I've seen a lot of stuff. But when he went on the air and said, you know, pushing this coronavirus is kind of going against nature because the, the vaccines would pre prevent a disease that's, quote, supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people. Just absolutely positively studied. Well, Newsmax is kind of distancing itself from those remarks. A spokesman for Newsmax telling the Washington Post that the network supports the vaccination program, here's the quote, Newsmax as a network strongly supports President Biden's efforts to widely distribute the COVID vaccine. It is important for the safety of all, and especially those at high risk, such as the elderly. And, the network said, um, some hosts, some guests may not be as supportive of these efforts, but their opinions, again, quoting, do not 
reflect the position of Newsmax. So when you say something that's you know so off the charts, and your network has to come out and say, yeah, you know, uh, we have some people here saying stuff, but that we don't agree with that. That's called distancing. That means they can't defend what Rob Schmidt said. He claims he was misinterpreted, but you know it's on video. I read you the quotes. Go look at the segment. Make up your own mind. Now, speaking of the vaccine, Mitch McConnell had a news conference yesterday, and he said, this is the verb he used, the Senate Republican leader said he was perplexed by some people's reluctance to get vaccinated. We need to just keep preaching that getting the vaccine is important And this is fascinating if you don't know this about Mitch. McConnell survived polio as a child. So he has, you know, incredibly personal firsthand experience with the importance of vaccines and the crippling effects of a disease uh, if you're not successfully vaccinated. Uh, The senator from Kentucky goes on to say we need to finish the job. Part of it is just convincing the American people of the importance of doing this. Everyone who knows the subject says that if you get the disease, chances are pretty good you're not going to die from it if you get vaccinated. And then a reporter at this news conference said, well, what about uh, some of your fellow Republican senators? Uh, Ron Johnson was mentioned who are uh, stoking skepticism about these vaccines. And here's what Mitch McConnell said. I can only speak for myself. I don't think I've ever heard Mitch McConnell say that. I mean, Mitch McConnell's power derives from the fact that he is the leader of the Senate Republicans, whether he was minority leader now or was majority leader before. When he wanted to pass tax cuts, when he wanted to get uh, all those conservative judges confirmed, including Trump's three Supreme Court appointees, he didn't say, I only speak for myself. He had his, his, his whole life is devoted to politics and bringing along his caucus. But what he's saying here, basically, if you read between the lines, is, well, I can't do anything about these other people. So I'm having a news conference. I'm telling you what I think. And the others, you know, have to be responsible for their own positions, which is kind of a disturbing acknowledgement that, you know, even the Senate Republican leader can't change minds on this subject. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, another thing that is going to be introduced in Congress today and is not going to pass, at least in this session, it's considered a long shot, is Chuck Schumer, and this has been a pet issue of the Senate Majority Leader, um, is going to propose a bill to decriminalize marijuana. Now, obviously, that's already happened in certain states. Uh, so he's drafted a bill that would take marijuana off of the federal list of controlled substances. And instead, the feds would start regulating it and taxing it, as has happened in Colorado and a handful of other states. So this industry, which is booming, it's also booming in Canada. Um, under this federal law, this is interesting, states would still be allowed to set their own marijuana laws. So in other words, if you live in a state, let's say you live in Kentucky, just because we were talking about McConnell. And in Kentucky, it's still illegal to possess or sell marijuana. The fact that it's not illegal as a federal matter doesn't mean you can't be arrested and prosecuted and even imprisoned, depending on the amounts and so forth. So it does allow states' rights to that extent, but it means you can't be prosecuted on federal charges, what um, the bill refers to as the failed federal prohibition of cannabis. Prohibition, of course, a word with a lot of historical resonance going back to um, the outlawing of liquor, which, you know, took a constitutional amendment and then took another constitutional amendment to repeal it. 
Uh, Cory Booker, interesting, says we want to finally turn the page on this dark chapter in American history and begin righting these wrongs because um, the bill would uh, wipe the records clean of anybody who's already been convicted on federal charges of marijuana-related offenses, and that affects a lot of people in the minority community. Um, the Atlantic is a magazine that I read, that I sometimes quote on the podcast. I think in addition to its political coverage, and I don't agree, it's a liberal magazine, it was anti-Trump, I don't agree with everything in the Atlantic, but I think it has a lot of, or has had a lot of fascinating cultural and just really well-written pieces about the pandemic, about vaccines, about, you know, you name it. Well, it's struggling financially. NBC has a piece quoting, uh, or quoting sources as saying that the chief executive, Nick Thompson, gave a presentation to employees that um, was not exactly uplifting. Uh, subscription growth soared in 2020. Why? Because of Trump. It's, this is reflected in a lot of other news outlets as well. So now, since Trump is no longer in office, the number of subscribers has plateaued, has started to slightly decline, and they really rely, the magazine really relies on those subscribers for the majority of its revenue. In fact, the magazine um, lost $20 million, I guess this is last year, even with that surge in subscriptions. It's on track to lose another $10 million this year, according to the slides from this presentation. Now, uh, the CEO is more upbeat, saying, well, you know, we're going to only lose a few million dollars next year, and then we'll turn a profit in 2023. Good luck with that. But The Atlantic has um, a big, wealthy backer, Lorraine Powell Jobs, uh, bought it from businessman David Bradley a few years ago. She, of course, the widow of Steve Jobs and philanthropist investor. And she bought the majority stake, but, and she's worth about $22 billion, so she could carry The Atlantic. But she didn't buy it, according to sources quoted in this piece, you know, as a matter of philanthropy. She bought it to demonstrate there could be a sustainable model for quality journalism. So Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief, who I've known for a long time, who's a high-profile uh, writer and author, as well as uh, having run this magazine for the last several years, is described, according to unnamed sources, as being worried that uh, Powell Jobs might pull the plug if the magazine doesn't reach profitability within the next four or five years. Publicly, what he says is Lorraine and Emerson Collective, that's her group, her organization, both have strategic patients that have made the support of quality journalism their main goal here, and they believe that readers will pay for high-quality journalism. I think Lorraine is an excellent owner who is in this for the long run. Uh, just a few months ago, The Atlantic had some layoffs reflecting these financial issues, laid off about 17% of its staff. Um, so with Trump no longer around to kick around, I mean, they still kick him around like everybody else, but he's not president. And these financial problems, shrinking the staff, uh, that's something to keep an eye on. Meanwhile, Cornell West, you know, probably one of the most famous uh, black scholars in America, um, announcing uh, the other day, that he has resigned from Harvard's Divinity School. Now, what's fascinating here is we already knew this. He said a few months ago he was going to leave. And um, it also was a battle about tenure. He, he wrote this resignation letter June 30th, but he just posted it to Twitter. And he takes all these shots at Harvard. He says, how sad it is to see our beloved Harvard Divinity School in such decline and decay, the disarray of a scattered curriculum, the disenchantment of talented yet deferential faculty, and the disorientation of precious students 
loom large. And then he tweets that Harvard has become market-driven and let us bear witness against this spiritual rot. Now, he had been negotiating with Harvard. He wanted to turn his untenured position into a tenured one. This is similar to Nicole Hannah-Jones, who turned down the offer after a big tenure fight from the University of North Carolina, instead going to Howard University here in D.C. Um, and so my only question is, so Cornell West says he feels disrespected and, and devalued, and he's going to go to some other school, and you know you don't have to worry about him. He obviously will be able to make a fine living. My only question is, if you're at Harvard for years, even if you're pissed off, you feel you were mistreated, and you deserve time and so forth, why burn the bridges so publicly? Like, why not just quit and say, I was disappointed? You can certainly fair to criticize the university. Maybe some of the things he says are true. But why use this kind of rhetoric, decline, decay, spiritual rot? Um, you know, it's just Harvard, you know, gave you a pretty good living. And now you're kicking them, punching them in the teeth on the way out the door. That, to me, doesn't seem classy. You know, uh, we all have strong feelings about these things, and he has every right to walk out the door, and he wants to criticize the institution. That's fine. But this is, you know, a uh, finger in the eye to a place that provided a pretty good academic platform for Cornell West. Nevertheless, he's made his decision, and maybe in this uh, fractious media environment, the only way to get attention is to use incendiary rhetoric. And I've made that point many times, not just in academia, in politics, in media itself um, in almost every phase in the social media era that we live in, you know, if you use uh, really hot language, if you're beat up on people, hey, you get clicks, you get retweeted. Um, I've tried not to fall into that. I probably have felt a little over the line at times like everybody. Um, but anyway, on that note, once again, I appreciate you being along for the ride here. You can subscribe at Apple iTunes and a whole lot of other places. We'll see you back here tomorrow with more BuzzBeat. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 